So hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the NHS England patient safety team. So my name is Tracy Herlihy and I'm the head of patient safety incident response policy. In this episode, we will be focusing on the patient safety incident response framework, which was published in August 2022 and specifies a new approach to improvement following patient safety incidents. By autumn 2023, PSERF will replace the current serious incident framework. And this new framework, PSERF, it changes not only how we respond to patient safety incidents to capture learning and make more meaningful improvements, but it also importantly changes the oversight of patient safety incident response, with the role of provider boards and integrated care boards changing significantly. When PSERF was published, Back in August 2022, we included an oversight roles and responsibilities guide, which you'll be able to find the link to in the podcast description. And in this podcast today, we will be discussing this guide, why it's important, how we developed it, and what organisations should be doing as they consider their own processes. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Lauren Mosley, Head of Patient Safety Implementation in the National Patient Safety Team, and also two external guests who were integral to the development of our oversight guide. This is um, Lauren Morgan and also Donna Forsyth, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Thanks, Tracy. Um, my name is Lauren. I'm a Chartered Human Factors and Economics Practitioner. I'm and Director of Morgan Human Systems Limited. I work alongside governance teams in a number of hospitals helping them implement HF thinking into the governance process and as a HF practitioner I've previously worked at the University of Oxford as a lecturer and with national bodies such as HSIB and the General Medical Council looking at how we can do investigation better in the NHS. Thanks Lauren. Um, Donna how about you? Hi thanks Tracy. Hi everyone. Uh, I'm Donna Forsyth. I'm a chartered physiotherapist and a qualified chartered safety professional. Um, I am also Director of Patient Safety Science, Not-for-Profit Limited. Uh, I was the previous Head of Investigation at NHS England, and I was the architect uh, of the original PISA. Great. Thanks, Donna and, and Lauren. Really excited to have you both here today to talk about oversight. Um, but before we talk about the document in particular, I was hoping we could come to our Lauren Mosley from the National Patient Safety Team to tell us a little bit about the history to the change in oversight, kind of why it's important and what we're hoping to achieve with the change. Yeah, thank you, Tracy. Yeah, the other Lauren just could get confusing today, couldn't it, with two Laurens on the call, two Lauren M's. Um, yeah, and, and Donna will know this too, because we were t t together as we uh, try to work out the changes that we needed to make in terms of oversight. And Donna, I don't know if you remember this, but not long after we published the 2015 Serious Incident Framework, I remember we were still in a queue at one of the patient safety conferences. I can't remember which one it was now. And we talked about the problem with the word serious. Um, and we said it really is quite a problematic word because of the dispute that it causes between providers and commissioners, the fact that it is, you know, an arbitrary um, definition often um, and also there was this sense that when and when you were recognizing or identifying an SI you then had to declare it um, and that was generally seen as a bad mark against an organization um, and used as performance management so there was this although it was never intended that way there was this quite adversarial process set up around SI management between providers and commissioners. Um, as I say, often there was dispute about what should be reported as an SI. 
um, the reaction of commissioners as well sometimes when um, a serious, serious instance would go up or down and the level of interest in that and the kind of scrutiny that was applied generally, generally, and I am generalising, but generally made organisations quite defensive and not want to declare SIs because they were, you know, never kind of celebrated as a learning opportunity as such. It was really seen as something going um, very wrong. Um, and then, of course, we had this situation where a provider would, so once they declared their SI and they'd done their investigation report, um, they'd be held to account on timeframes throughout the investigation process as well. So they were often required to report within two days, generate a 72 hour or three day report and then submit um, an investigation report within 60 days. And again, that was very much as a sort of a performance management and that focus on process rather than than quality was having a real bearing on the quality of, of the outputs of the investigation reports themselves and it also again unintentionally but set up this um don't know i don't know if you agree with this sort of phrasing but this I, we heard it mentioned when we were doing the engagement work this kind of parent child relationship between the provider and the commissioner because the provider would send up their report um, to the commission and they would essentially mark the homework and then there was dispute about the comments and again it wasn't in the spirit of real learning and, and improvement it was completing a process um, yeah I agree entirely yeah um, and you're right it set up a, an adversarial um, checking yeah um, process which which didn't help working relationships it there was a lot of frustration involved in it on both parts, from both sides, really. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a very difficult place to be, I think, when an SI had happened and people were feeling uh, that they had to hold people to account and therefore yeah. the other party felt blamed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, as we went through the engagement process, and I mean, we received over 400 individual responses um, to the engagement written responses. Um, you know, we went out and talked to people, watched everything, and every the the feedback that we were getting um, was that this was a massive cultural issue, and the whole system needed to change. And I think the oversight structures and the relationship between the provider and then CCG or commissioner more generally was absolutely crucial to that. So that's the bit that we knew we really had to change. And it's I think really fortunate that we've been able to write piece of test it develop it at the same time as the integrated care systems are developing because the messages are the same it's more about partnership collaboration you know what we did see under the si framework was this declaring of si's and they were defined by organizational wars so was it is it yours or is it mine and we know um that rarely do we have incidents that are constrained to um, one organisation or, a, you know, a tiny part of, a, of an organisation. We're generally, unfortunately, now the NHS dealing with big complex system problems that's absolutely um, reliant on organisations, systems working together and not um, competing with each other or one being seen as the bad organisation or the good organisation because that just doesn't exist we you know we, ha we have to start working more collaboratively so I think um yeah I think it, it, it it's fortunate that we have we have a new system now as well I don't know if I've answered all the points to your question there Tracy you might have to 
No, I, th I think that's yeah. given us a really good kind of, um, I guess, background to why we kind of made these changes in oversight. I know, Donna, you already came in a little bit and kind of talked about, um, kind of reiterated some of the stuff that Lauren was saying. But I, I was wondering, because you were involved in that early stage as well, did you have any further reflections on kind of what are the importance of changing oversight structures? Yeah, thanks, Tracy. Um, it, it became really clear that this was one of the key things that needed to be addressed. It may not be obvious this far down the line, but PSURF was developed when I was so convinced about the usefulness of a good quality investigation that I actually used good quality investigation process to investigate why investigation wasn't working in the NHS. And uh, as Lauren said, <clears throat> went and looked at, in detail at what people were actually doing when they were implementing on a day-to-day -day basis the serious incident framework. And it was fascinating to see, uh, some of you may know about the, the work as imagined versus work as done model, but what you imagine when you write a national policy, a serious incident framework, and what you imagine people are doing and what everyone else imagines each other are doing, is not what's actually happening when you go and watch. And what's more, what is happening is hugely variable across the whole system. So people think they're all doing the same thing and they're not, and they think they're following the policy. And um, it's fairly clear that we didn't write it clearly enough that um, people understood it in their own way uh, or chose to, or were able to change it. Uh, sufficiently that it diverted from the original intention. Um, so yeah, this investigation of investigation in the NHS told us that one of the key or many key contributory factors were around oversight mm -hmm. and how that was working. I've just remembered something in relation to what you said, Donna, um, on the workers imagined workers done, because I think one of the interesting findings as well was that, you know, the, the SIF although I talked about SIs being declared per organisation and being counted um, as a, you know, as a mark against an organisation, the SIF did always um, ask and promote commissioning systems to do more cross-system um, investigations and working. And I think it was a surprise, at least to me, to see how little of that was actually happening out there um, in the commissioning system when we went to look. That Absolutely. And I think that comes about because when you write a national policy, people then write their own mm. local policy and that can get changed and things can get added or dropped or interpreted. And so a, a million different ways of doing what we all hoped was the same thing arose. Um, so the contributory factors that that came out from this work um, were the ones were almost became the basis of PSURF. So PSURF is the high level uh, recommendations and action plan that came out of that investigating investigation in the NHS work. And uh, the ones around oversight particularly just showed us that oversight wasn't being applied in the way A, in the way we'd intended, but also B, um, in the way that was helping safety to progress. And it's really clear uh, that none of this was intentional. The misdirection was caused by P 
people trying to do a good thing, for example, trying to reduce the workload of staff by bundling things together, bundling different types of investigation together and just doing one, um, or trying to get other high profile work aims into um, the serious incident framework process, such as duty of candor, for example, was pushed into the investigation process and was assumed to be being done well because it was in there and it wasn't it was very processized in many places again i'm generalizing but also uh it then in order to get the duty of candor process to work properly people thought they had to do an investigation so it increased the number of investigations there was lots of these things going on uh that weren't intended in the document in the serious incident framework document but people were trying to do a good thing trying to reduce workload trying to streamline things and some of that was about a lack of understanding of the original aim, but mostly it was about um, trying to get stuff done in the most efficient way and uh, not realising that the unintended consequence of all of that was way too many investigations, investigation reports being seen as the outcome rather than the start of an action plan, but also um, it frustrated the improvement piece because all of the energy and, and uh, workload was centered upon the investigation report and whether that was finished or not, and finished in time or not, um, and not enough on the improvement plan, the quality of the improvement plan, achieving it, and really importantly, checking whether the, the finished action plan had actually made any difference. So um, all of that, uh, that all of those findings in that investigation piece told us that the oversight was a big thing that needed to change under PISA um, to try and make move this on and to make the working environment between NHS providers and as were the commissioners now, the uh, ICSs, much more fruitful, much more positive uh, and much more meaningful. Thanks very much, Jenna. And I think um, what you've described is really like it. It's just a really good case study of how to use almost kind of human factors principles in the design of policy itself. You know, how you did the investigation of investigations, the early adopter program, the independent evaluation of that and how the kind of design of the policy kind of progressed iteratively with those different stages. Um, so that's a really good kind of um, background to kind of why we made these changes. And I'm going to come over to you, Lauren Morgan. <laughs> I have to use both names so we know who I'm coming to. And um, just to give you a heads up, um, you're next. Um, but yeah, I'm going to come come, come over to you because I, I was hoping because um, both you and Donna were really integral in developing the kind of oversight document that we now have as part of our kind of PSERF documentation. I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit more about how you went about developing that document in particular. Thank you. So building on that original piece of work that's just been described, we met with a range of stakeholders from different organisations and different roles to understand the challenges with the then current system and the parts that they, importantly, the parts that they liked and wanted to keep. So not redoing that piece of work, but just making sure that we were really focused on the oversight bit and trying to reinforce not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And this led to our baseline decision in the development of that document, which was we'd be focusing on qualitative, inquisitive oversight rather than quantitative 
judgmental oversight. And that's where the basis for the questions and the discussion um, focus of the oversight comes from. It's all about conversations and qualitative data rather than judging on either timeframes or specific data metrics. Yeah, I guess it's just a, another example of how kind of working with those who would, you know, the, who the document kind of influences and would have to, you know, people who'd have to pick it up and work with it was so important in the in the development of it. Um, so I guess um, in the document, we have the questions that you've already talked a little bit about, Lauren, and I'm sure we'll come back to them a little bit more. But we also um, at the beginning, we have kind of a, a mindset around um, oversight. And I was wondering, Donna, if you could maybe talk a little bit more about why this kind of shift in mindset is so important when it comes to oversight. Yeah, sure. Um, your mindset can be so important in determining future success. It's important because if you merely read the PSERF document and train people on the PSERF document and process the changes and make sure you've got processes and meetings uh, for each part of it, the successful differences that we really want to happen will not happen. It isn't an, just another policy to be um, updated or to be implemented. That sounds crazy because isn't that what we do with everything? And it, it often is. But what we're saying here is some of the things in PSERF aren't new. Uh, we've been saying them for a long time. And they're still not happening in terms of, for example, uh, meaningful engagement and involvement of staff and patients and families. And again, I'm generalizing. Some people are good at this. Some people aren't so good. And uh, some organizations have moved on better than others. But generally speaking, we've been saying this since 2004 and the evidence when we go look isn't out there in any great depth. So adding into that mix mindset, uh, we want people to think differently about how they implement this process and what are the key things they need to change to make it happen. And that involves way more than training, explaining and asking people to refrain from things that uh, aren't best practice. Um, so, yeah, we want people to actually look at taking a systems approach to this. So instead of just train, uh, read the policy, follow the policy, uh, don't do anything you shouldn't be doing. As Lauren said, we want people to be inquisitive and we want people to uh, use a mindset approach to start looking around the system, the organisation of work and the environment, uh, the organisation of task design, um, the organisation and external influences and uh, all those sorts of things. In, in fact, you know, we want to take a systems approach to improving um, the way we look at incidents and learn from them. OK, so, yeah, so I, I think, yeah, I, when we were when we were writing the documents, I think this shift in mindset kind of really outlines kind of the, the it's it's almost the biggest change, isn't it? You know, where we want like some of the things you've already mentioned about kind of taking that systems approach, recognizing, you know, the the blame and kind of how that can restrict learning, making sure that the focus is on improvement, like you already mentioned before, Donna, rather than on the kind of the process of the, getting the report done within a certain time with making improvement more of the focus. So we wanted to bring those things kind of up um, front in, in the in the document. 
Um, but just kind of thinking about, so it, I guess it, it's quite nice talking about, you know, how we want people to shift their mindset. And we've talked a little bit about how ways of working under the SIF, you know, the serious incident framework. So things like, you know, making sure we fit complete things in 60 days, getting a 72 hour report, all those types of things. But I guess what is actually changed? What are we asking people to do in this new um, way of conducting oversight? What are the major differences? Would would you guys, anybody really be able to talk us through some of those major differences? Yes, sure. Um, I, I mean, the mindset differences really are moving away from monitoring um, safety data or one metric, which used to be how many serious incidents people had had, to a more meaningful way of doing this. And, and you know, we can talk in more detail about that. But I, I also talked about compassionate, effective involvement um, of staff and patients and relatives. And uh, as I said, that's not new, but we need people to really grasp this uh, with both hands and make this an important part of responding to incidents. It doesn't have to be part of an investigation, uh, just how being confident and learning the skills to talk to people and say sorry and talk to people about what has happened and not necessarily think that is an investigation process and you can't do anything about that outside of an investigation process. Lots of patients and families don't really need an investigation. They need to be spoken to and involved and to feel that they've been understood and that they understand what's gone on. Talking about uh, moving away from a compliance and holding to account approach, uh, moving away from blame and avoidability determinations in investigations. We're trying to get investigations to look at the system and how we can improve the system. We're not dodging avoidability, we're not do do dodging individual accountability. We want people to take a systems approach to investigations and to the improvement rather than looking at individual what the individuals did, avoidability, determinations, those sort of things. We're not avoiding um, those determinations, but they are different investigations. Other people are doing that and doing that well. And we don't need to involve those determinations in our safety investigations. In fact, when we do, we don't get the best learning. It frustrates learning when people think that they're going to be blamed. We're just looking at the system. And, and this is the mindset change I was talking about, Tracy. Uh, <clears throat> where we are trying to bound our investigations for safety and leave the other important investigation types to other people. And then, of course, we need to improve the quality investigations, which we can best do by getting people who are trained in safety investigation to lead these, but also that they haven't got too many, that the quality goes down. I think one of the things that we explored a little bit in the um, development of the document and in development of the specification was whether oversight was a challenging term and whether it set us up to be thinking in the wrong way. And we we dallied about with other terms. So we, we looked at guardianship and we looked at stewardship because that felt more that it reflected the partnership working that is in that new move from the CCG into the ICSs and ICBs. And I think that's that's where the mindset behind what's written comes from, in that we're looking after, as overseers, we're looking after and supporting a system for the future. 
It's not ours to mark. It's not ours to critique. It's ours to make better for the future and in partnership with those that are doing the work. And I think that for me is the, the cornerstone of what we're trying to do here. So although the term oversight remains because of the fact that people understand what that role is, actually the meaning behind it feels much more like um, stewardship where we're kind of supporting something to be its better self in the future. I love that, Lauren. Thanks yeah. for describing that really well. I, I remember seeing that as your work was um, evolving and you know, really wanting there to be a different word <laughs> to describe oversight. But like you say, there was all the different meanings with guardianship and other things. But I think just as you say, Lauren, it, it's the meaning behind that word that we were really trying to to get to. Um, there was something interesting as well that I think we started to, well, we, we have seen through the early adopter programme that as the mindset starts to shift and there is this recognition of where, um, you know, patient safety, incident response, systems based responses fit alongside other processes, although you're kind of breaking things down, it's actually an opportunity to have a conversation and to collaborate with wider teams that are absolutely brilliant at the job that they do. So we've seen some fabulous work with patient safety teams and HR, um, organisational development, even bringing finance in, because I think for many organisations, the SI process happened in a silo. Um, it was a responsibility of the patient safety team generally and you know they were doing a, a sterling job of getting through that process but there was nowhere for that improvement to go as such so there wasn't the links with the quality improvement teams or finance teams but what PSURF has done is recognise the importance of um, bringing in everybody from your system that can actually make a difference and help this to work in the way that it that it was intended and everybody comes on that kind of um, mindset journey with you as well yeah I think I think if there's one thing to take away um, from this podcast and we're only halfway through is that kind of um the the shift to this kind of collaborative partnership working and I I think um Lauren and I Lauren Mosley and I've been attending kind of some regular um patient safety collaborative meetings and helping um, organizations to transition to PISA and we're starting to see it kind of there as well people starting to feel more willing to talk about their processes and, and learning from each other and ICBs and providers kind of be coming together in this kind of same learning space to kind of figure out kind of piece of what it means for them and how they can work to change their processes. And that is kind of the key thing. One of the key things we're hoping to achieve with this kind of oversight document is more around what you were saying, Lauren Morgan, about, um, you know, kind of stewardship, guardianship and kind of supporting more of a collaboration, um, collaborative way of working. And I think that, you know, especially now as we're kind of going through those um, preparation phases to transition to PSERF, as we start to move towards developing our patient safety incident response plans and so on, that collaboration there at that very early stage is really key for kind of setting those kind of relationships that we want to kind of build on um, later on. Um, the, 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 I was going to ask as well, um, just thinking about kind of oversight in practice, and I, I guess at the, the moment, or you know, when previously as CCGs and um, now transitioning to ICBs and so on, we're very, in, 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 and just in the NHS in general, I guess, we, we love a dashboard, we love some, we know, love like a colourful, 
um, thing to look at on our screens. And I guess with PISA and, and looking at the, the roles and responsibilities documents, we've got a lot of more kind of qualitative questions in there to really understand how systems are working and the improvement that we're producing. Um, and so I was I was wondering what you guys think about dashboards. Are they a thing of the past? Is it or is it more about what you want in the dashboard? I'll come to you, Lauren Morgan. So I think quantitative data, counting data is really important, just not really for external monitoring on its own. It it lacks, it often lacks the context that makes it useful. Teams having access to their own data, data that's useful to them, that they understand that they need has been shown time and time again to be really, really helpful for important in, for improvement efforts. But I don't think that's what you're asking about. I think when you talk about dashboards, you're talking about select figures where we compare where I don't think that's what you're asking about. I think when you're talking about dashboards, you're talking about specific data points which are used to compare across organisation, across systems without that rich context and that's where I feel like they're quite problematic so if a dashboard is a single team or a group of teams that have their own data that's useful for them that they can see how they're doing how they're progressing absolutely no problem in that when we understand what that data is and all of the problems with it um, but can we use a single data point in a distant place to monitor a system on a dashboard, I think that's really problematic. And I think we really have to look at that. It's easier, it's much easier to compare organisations in that way than having conversations with individuals, but it's not truthful and it doesn't tell the, the full picture. And I think we've got ourselves in a lot of problems by re relying on those data sets previously. And I think we need to really start to shift away from them um, and I think this oversight opportunity we've, we've structured the oversight framework to not have a single quantitative data point to kind of prohibit that comparison in that way across organisations when we were having our pre preamble before starting the the podcast today we were talking about standardisation and the challenge of standardization and how many organizations at the moment are anxious about being standardized with others. And I think it was it was Donna that said, but we weren't starting from a place of standardization either. So we have to understand where people are coming from and where they're going to on this. Um, and so monitoring them on a single data point or a, or a batch of data points or whatever um, has specific challenges. And that's why we've chosen not to have any specific data points in the current um, framework. And what you mean by a dashboard and you're dead right. You know, it's normally colour coded with numbers and uh, very uh, objectively driven. Um, in terms of measuring safety and measuring improvement from learning from incidents and then being able to oversee that, I think a single metric was also always a problem. But if you could have a dashboard of more quantitative measures, such as those that are listed in the oversight specification, um, I don't know where, I don't, it might not look like a dashboard anymore and it might not look sexy and colourful, but um, I do think we need to move from single metrics and single data points. And uh, I'm just thinking, sorry, we did look at suicide since we also used to look at never events and use those as a measure as well. 
but we need to have lots and lots of different measures that tell us where we're going on all the different points that are really important uh, that came up as improvement requirements under PSERF. Almost all the contributing factors could have uh, some sort of, of, of measure, but they'd often be qualitative. You know, what did the staff feel about the investigation? How did they feel after the investigation? Uh, you know, how much sickness was generated by this? And how did families feel about this during and after the investigation? Or indeed, was there an investigation? And how did they feel about uh, our engagement of them in the absence of an investigation? All those things, I think, could be put together as a dashboard, but it wouldn't be the typical one that we've seen in the past. I, I I totally agree in relation to the point about dashboards, and I I feel like we've you know we've had this conversation so many times, and we see SIs and never events as you say, Donna, as a feature of so many um, board and commissioner um, reports. What I, what I was going to say, um, which I think was you know an, an, an in, interesting finding from the early adopter program, but definitely something we had intended, um, was that there was a lot more sharing of intelligence and far more access to um, insight around what was recognised as an incident, how things were reported and how they were responded to um, between providers and commissioners. Because under the SIF, although commissioners would get every SI that was declared to them, they were at tiny proportion, less than 1% generally, of all the incidents, the patient safety incidents that an organisation was reported. And all that intelligence about, um, you know, how how reporting was happening and the issues that were being identified, that wasn't that wasn't seen by the commissioning system. Um, and PSERF, I think, because it is a conversation and you're sat around a table and you're not looking at a dashboard of SIs or never events and you're having a conversation about incidents and risk more broadly and, you know, how, how we need to respond to those that are most important to a particular organisation or a population. It just it. It changes that conversation, but it also it's so much richer. Um, and I think that really helped to reduce the anxiety that the commissioning system originally had around taking away SIs and the dashboards that went with that. Um, and I know that's not just it was not just PSEF that will help with that. Hopefully, um, once we're organisations have trash, uh, transitioned to the Learn from Patient Safety Event Service, um, that data will be far easier to share than um, you know the current LRLS and STICE, and that will hopefully help massively too. But I thought that was, um, yeah, an important feature. Yeah, I think I think we still kind of want organisations to be able to use data, but I guess we just want mm -hmm. it to be used more meaningfully. And I guess, and as we we in the oversight guide as well, and we 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 kind of there's a there's a section which you know kind of gives a few pointers, I guess, on kind of an oversight approach, and it, it's more about you know using a variety of data. So yes, there is some quantitative data, but the qualitative data like. Um, Lauren Morgan was saying around, um, you know, helping you to understand the context within which kind of our learning responses are taking place is really important. So I, I imagine that we're not going to be we're not going to see a huge shift away from dashboards, but it's uh, I guess it's how we use them, the data that's within them and how we kind of supplement that with the qualitative information, which may even be may even be more important than some of the, the quantitative stuff that's that's within it. Um, so just thinking about some of those qualitative questions then, 
Um, would it be possible to kind of, you know, just give a few examples of the questions? I think it might be quite helpful um, to give a few questions from the guidance and just to show how they could be used in, um, I guess, as part of oversight. So I've got an example uh, question from the guidance in the, so we split the questions between questions that provider boards ask of themselves and of their organisation and also the questions that the ICB and other overseers such as the LMNS and um, can ask of them. So this one's from the provider board aspect and it, it talks, it's in the section about engagement of those affected. And it asks, how do we know our processes of engagement are working? What are our current barriers? And to answer this, I'd want to speak to those leading investigations and find out how, how easy they find it to engage patients, their advocates, and also staff post-incidents. And if I was to do that, if I think about some of the organisations that I'm working with currently, I'd likely find that it's sometimes quite tricky in that people can often feel underprepared to have these conversations and what should be simple things like finding a room to have a meeting with a family or a room to have a meeting with a staff member can be really challenging and I think it's these things that would never come out on a dashboard would never come out on a you know in a in a the old way that we were doing oversight but is something that actually as provider boards, we could make a decision to facilitate. So we could look at what are our spaces to have compassionate engagement in? What do they look like? How much do we actually value this task? And how are we gonna resource it in terms of space and in terms of training and in terms of people's to do this job? So I think from that one question, we can really explore what those barriers are and then challenge ourselves as organisations. What are we doing about that? Is it something that actually for now that's not on our, you know, we don't have the resource to do that and that's something for the future? Or is it something actually now we'd really like to look at this? So what we're going to do is specify a space and specify some roles of people that are going to that are going to do it. So I think that's the kind of thing that we'd like these questions to unlock. So looking, it doesn't matter that you don't have this space. It doesn't matter that staff have lots of barriers at the moment in terms of um, doing, having these conversations. It's about what's the intelligence that the answer to that question gives us about our organisation and then what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I really like the, um, the response bit to that as well, because I guess once you have that information, it's kind of how you act on it and it's not a case of just telling people to do it better next time but it's more about like you were describing you know looking at the systems and the processes that we have in place and looking how we can adapt those to enable staff to kind of improve the engagement and so on so yeah i, I mean that, that was a really really good example i don't know if um donna or lauren mosley if you guys wanted to talk about some of the other questions or yeah i was just going to uh reiterate a little about what Lauren Morgan just said. Uh, I think in the past, a lot of the uh, measures or the evidence from oversight has been about has it been done? And what we're moving towards, and this is a mindset change again, where are you going? Um, is there evidence of progress? Have you got some milestones towards continuous improvement? Now, I know those aren't as handy for boards, but they're much more um, useful for safety and much more meaningful and much more likely to move us to safety improvement. 
than some of the metrics that can be tweaked as necessary and uh, with, the, with the best possible intent or some of the metrics that don't really tell us what we think that they're telling us. These things, uh, these new ways of thinking, what are your milestones? You know, is there evidence of continuous improvement, even if it's really slow? And, uh, you know, maybe e even in the absence of any investigations, how do your staff and, and patients feel after an incident? How have they been treated and how has it been explained to them? Uh, and how are they feeling after an incident has happened? And I suspect, and have a, I think Lauren has a little bit of evidence of this as well, that these things will can be improved much more quickly than hard data about safety improvement. So these might be some of your short or medium term goals. Um, qualitative, though they may be, there are ways of measuring them via surveys and via talking to patients and staff about how they feel about the new way of working. Sorry, I don't know if it's um, helpful to go through another example, but I just think um, you're sticking with the, you know, the, the, the theme of engagement and involvement and looking at the ICB questions um, that are included in the guidance. I think colleagues will recognise how different they are. So there's, for example, uh, just to pull one out, there is a question there about how extensive is the evidence of a just culture, e.g. does blame or focusing on individual actions or omissions in investigations still occur? Um, and I think it's the attention to those things that will start to shift thinking um, because we're recognising the importance of it. And even if you made that a focus of your monthly or you know regular meeting, um, if you were an ICB lead with your provider, and, and that was all you talked about, the evidence for that, and then you had um, a rich discussion about where the gaps were, what the evidence was telling you, that could generate so much useful activity that will influence culture in an organisation compared to the monthly churn that we usually see around numbers, what's happening with this one, uh, you know, have we got to the deadline, have we reached the deadline, etc. Um, it, it really starts to change the conversation and gets to the important stuff as, as well. I think you're right, Lauren, and I think um, we shouldn't be fearful about saying we have no evidence on this mm -hmm. and then talking together about how, what sort of evidence might be useful. And coming back and saying that didn't work the way we thought, what else can we try? Yeah. Um, trying to find ways of measuring these things uh, and not being worried. I worked with a health and safety executive inspector once who used to say he didn't really care where people were as long as they knew where they were and they were moving forward. And I think <laughs> it's that sort of thing. So some of these things are devilishly difficult to improve on and to get certainly to get right and definitely to measure. But, you know, we need to be honest about it and say this is really difficult. Has anybody got any ideas? Has anybody tried this? And yeah, tried that, didn't work. Let's try something else. How do we measure properly um, how we're improving in some of these areas? And that doesn't always have to be an investigation and a report. Mm -hmm. We can get improvement on all sorts of other areas as well. Can I um, flag one of the questions in the ICB questions that I think for me is really important so often in the nhs we are 
forcing ourselves to push the accelerator pedal faster and harder. We want to do more with less. We, we need to achieve more. We're under more pressure. And that's never more evident than what's happening in our, in our NHS at the moment. And this question says, is there evidence that teams are attempting to complete an individual learning response to every incident and therefore resources are spread too thinly? And for me, this is critical to the success of PSIF. We have to trust that in depth and the depth and the breadth of the investigations for the safety priorities that are outlined in the PSIRP. And therefore, any additional learning from doing all of these investigations about individual incidents is going to be really limited, but massively resource intensive. So we need to stop doing that. And this is where I think the ICBs can be really powerful because they can help organisations stop doing that because it's against everything that we've been trained to do. Everything that we've been feeling like we need to do is investigate every incident. And, and PSIF is saying, no, stop. Investigate some, investigate them well, have conversations with families, have conversations with staff, but trust that the big investigations will have the learning for your organisation in. And I think that if we're honest and we share with families that this is something that we know about, it's something that we're working on, I think that feels better to families than kind of saying, oh, we didn't know that this was going to occur and um, and we're going to do an investigation and we're going to find, develop an improvement plan about it. Actually, we're honest about where our challenges are. We're honest about the safety journey that we're on. I think families will accept that or we know families will accept that from the work that we've done. So I think ICS is challenging or ICBs challenging provider organisations to take the pressure off continued investigation and allow that capacity to flow into the improvement arm of this piece of work will be really critical. So for once, it's not have you done, can you do more, do them faster? It's stop take the pressure off, do the improvement work instead. So I think that for me is a really critical one that I wanted to pick out. Thanks, Lauren, I really like that. Um, the important thing about moving away from the constant investigation into the improvement work is that uh, to date we have asked, has it been done? But we haven't often asked, did it work? And we only find out that it didn't work if another incident happens. And, and a lot of these metrics uh, have, haven't helped towards that. We need to work towards an improvement model where we're checking whether things are working or not. Certainly before implementation, definitely during implementation and after implementation. And we certainly shouldn't be sharing that knowledge until we know that something works. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that one up because I think that is really key. And like you said, you know, those who are in commissioning roles will have that power to enable organisations to to kind of have that flexibility to know as part of their plan where the potential for learning is and then enable them to focus on that improvement. And we know through our early adopter program, that is one of the most difficult things to give up. And it it may not happen when you initially transition, when organisations initially transition to PSEF, but over time, as 
organizations start to become more comfortable with the principles of PCEF and the ways of working and the realization that actually these repeat responses are not giving us anything meaningful and we need to invest those resources and improvements. And that's kind of how we've seen our early adopter um, program go. Um, so uh, this has been a really interesting discussion. Really glad that you guys have been able to make it today to kind of talk about oversight. I did want to try and end a little bit on a practical note just to kind of if it, just to see what your thoughts are. So yes, we've talked about kind of oversight, um, why it's changing, why it's important, what the changes are, how those changes can work in practice. But what should be the first step then for those in oversight roles to begin this kind of transition um, to PCEF? Um, what, what would be your tips for um, organisations? And if I, I guess if I go around, if I start maybe with, um, with you, Donna, and then uh, we'll go around, we can all talk about our top tips before we wrap up. Yeah, my top tips would be maybe to not work on the usual suspects first. I think it's ever so easy when you've got a list of things to do to start with training and start with writing the policy um, doesn't mean that they're not important but actually looking at how things are structured looking at the infrastructure behind your uh, serious incident framework work moving into PSERF um, and looking at whether indeed people do feel blamed and whether that it helps you with your piece of work or whether you need to rearrange your infrastructure first. So, yeah, try not to do the same old uh, things that you do as improvement and try and look at the system itself. Yeah, really useful tip. Thanks, Donna. How about um, you, Lauren Morgan? So I think for boards looking at whether the improvement teams are available to the PSERF team. So we talked earlier, I think Lauren Mosley was talking about how networking up departments within the organisation has been a real win for some of the early adopters. And I think, you know, this is a massive improvement project. What's the capacity within that PSERF team currently looking at? Have you got one person working on this for one day a week or have you got a team of people thinking about this? Because it is huge. It's a big change and it requires design. So that support from the um, improvement teams and then also the patient safety partners. So th that's part of the patient safety strategy is to have them employed. Our piece of implementation plans ask for engagement of um, patients and their advocates. So I think making sure that those are employed and in place so that they're available to the piece of guys to um, to use, I think would be really, really helpful. That's kind of setting everything up so it can tick along. And I think for the ICBs, do they, when they read the oversight framework, do they understand the question? So I, I completely buy Donna's, if we go straight in with training, that's kind of still reinforcing the blame shame train thing, isn't it? You weren't doing you weren't doing oversight right before, so we're going to train you how to do it right now. That's that's not what we're that's not where we're coming from here. But I think if you don't understand as a as someone sat within an ICS or in an ICB, if you don't understand what those questions in the framework are asking and why they're asking them, then that probably signifies a learning need, and that that is going to be pretty critical to you being able to support those organisations. And so some 
Um, I know some regional teams, uh, so the Midlands team I'm working with, um, are pulling together sessions for those ICB members to come together to talk about what this implementation, what overseeing the, overseeing the implementation will look like. And I think starting first with do you understand these questions is quite a fundamental fundamental starting point. I think the one bit that I would like to shoehorn in as well is that when we wrote the oversight framework and when we spoke about developing this together, we had this discussion about are we writing an oversight framework for overseeing the implementation of PSIRF or the in-flight version of PSIRF? And it's very much the in-flight version of PSIF. So I think perhaps that's a bit of a gap that we have at the moment, which is what these overseers are able to do of this implementation phase. So if you're feeling it's uncomfortable sat within a role that requires you to do that, that's OK. That's, you know, it's not we've thought about this. And um, so I think if you're sat within that oversight role at the moment and you're finding it a bit challenging, then that's OK. And I think the regional teams are starting to pull stuff together where we can learn from the early adopters, but also have discussions about what overseeing this setup phase will be. It's going to be messy. It's going to be challenging, but that's OK. And letting provider boards and providers know that, you know, it's going to be messy, I think is probably one of the most important bits that you can do now. Create a safe space for them to talk about their challenges with PSIF up to you I think that's going to be really really important and that'll start that partnership working that will or solidify that partnership working that'll set us up well for PSIRF in the future. I think that's a really good point and Lauren I think my my top tip follows on from that and although it sounds simple to say I think starting a conversation is the most important thing so you're not feeling alone because I think this can feel huge um, to individuals at a time of change and huge pressure. Um, but looking at this as a kind of transformational piece as well, where, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, exactly as you just said, Lauren, it will feel messy for a time and that's that's fine. But doing that with your peers and with the support of, you know, um, well, if you're in an ICB, your, your, your colleagues in an ICB, but also your providers, you're in this together. And I think establishing those links and having the conversation about how it's, you know, how you're going to work together differently in the future is so important. And I think being really honest about the history as well, you know, although we're operating under new structures, you know, often we're talking about people in this process with established relationships. And some of them are not always what we wanted. And I think being really honest about that. And thinking how you can have a different conversation with the support of other colleagues and how you start to um, build that trust if, if it has broken down. I know that, you know, I think over the past few years, even without the transformation to ICSs, commissioners and providers have started to work together more collaboratively. But we know in some parts of the country that's not the case. And I think, you know, being really honest about that, this it, we're people and you can't just... Um, you change and build trust overnight it takes time um yeah so I, I think exactly as you say start having the conversation um and give yourself time to reflect on the guidance that that is there and I think I'm probably risking repeating everything Donna and Lauren have just said um but if it 
feels new and scary just be honest about that and look for ways to help you through that I know training is not always the answer but it can be a starting point if this feels so far out of your comfort zone that you you, like you say Lauren you don't understand why the questions are even being asked so that would be that would be my tip really really useful um tips I mean I I loved kind of all of them for different reasons you know the comment about training the you know I guess enabling just recognizing it is going to be messy and it's okay to not get it right I mean we talk Mm -hmm. about eventually reaching peace earth utopia but we don't know what that looks like yet you know that is many years down the line and this is definitely an iterative process and our early adopters would definitely emphasize that they're continuing to learn about peace earth as they're going even after transitioning one almost kind of two years ago in some cases um and then that last comment around um you know small kind of com- just getting the conversation started and i think that's how change happens isn't it it's through those small conversations over over time and you know we will get there eventually um i'm sure so this has been a really useful um interesting conversation so just want to thank everybody on the on the call today we're going to finish the podcast there um, as usual if those who are listening in are looking to find out more about PSERF the best starting point is to visit the NHS England website and you can just type in PSIRF into that website or even into Google, you'll be able to find it directly from there. You can follow us from the National Patient Safety Team on Twitter using the handle at PTSafetyNHS, where we'll post updates about PSEF. And there's also a huge range of resources and a discussion forum available on our future NHS workspace. And we can pop the link to that in the um, podcast overview. And I'm sure we will see you all again soon.